All right. I'm ready to go today, man. I'm very excited about the word. This is a word that uh, the Holy Spirit and I have been wrestling with and working on for uh, a little while now, and, and I've kind of let this one germinate a little bit. Uh, and, and just to see where it, where it landed because I wanted to minister it in a place where it was uh, home. This is kind of a home away from home place, so kind of a safe zone to share some thoughts, but also to couple it with a word I want to minister tomorrow. I want to, I want to talk today about the symphony of the scriptures, and then tomorrow I want to talk about the song of the New Testament. And I, I, those two sort of musical ideas came together because of some wrestlings I was doing in the word and I want to let one sort of roll right over into the other. I, I honor uh, Neil today for the word that he gave and was blessed to see uh, where he developed that scripture. And, and uh, I, I'm just I'm always so amazed to sit and hear other speakers and watch. I like how he, he talked about how that to see that diamond shine from a different angle. That's a blessing. And, and to hear that word. Um, so I know that because I've sat through where you sat through. I know your hearts are so ready, and, and I know the reception is there for the Word, so it's exciting to sort of follow in behind that and see what the Holy Spirit will accomplish and might want to do and what we have today. Uh, I want to talk about, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm like every other person that ever pastors or speaks or whatever, um, enamored of the Bible, love the journey, Love the musings, love the wrestlings, love getting up and sharing it and teaching it and writing about it and talking about it. But like a lot of people, I have a contentious relationship sometimes with this book. Um, that's not something we say a lot of times from the pulpit. We always kind of like to act like we got it figured out. But the reality is, is I, I do get a little contentious with this book because sometimes I turn some things over in it and go, hmm. I don't really like the way that reads. I don't really like the way that sounds. I don't really like the way that goes down as I'm trying to swallow it. In fact, I don't think I can swallow it. And I've, I've even left some stuff there. If, and I think if we're honest, we all have and just went, okay, I'm going to push that aside and see what the Holy Spirit does to work on that in me at a later time or whatever. Uh, and, and, and so while I'm passionate about it and I love it and I love to talk about it and I love to relate what I'm seeing in it, um, I also realize that because there are a lot of those moments, those contentions, we can't just ignore them. We just can't just push them aside and forever say, okay, we don't have to deal with that. We do have to learn how to contextualize. We do have to learn how to compartmentalize. But at the same time, we want the song. We want the thing to be music. We don't want dissonance, right? I mean, you get the melody of the scripture, and then you get this horn blast out to the side that's in the wrong key, and you go, wait a minute, that doesn't look like Jesus. That doesn't sound like a new covenant. And I think what we've done a lot of times, and we've done this pretty successfully, is we've compartmentalized with covenant. So we've been able to go, okay, well, that scripture you can kind of not mess with because it's old covenant, and it's for different people, and we don't really have to deal with it. And, uh, and that works, but doesn't really work because the horn's still blasting in a different key over there. And even though you go, well, that's not our song, that's someone else's song. It's all about, as, as Neil said so well, it's all about Jesus. And so it's all supposed to come back to him somehow to get that music to sing the same song, that symphony to play the same note. And so how do we get it to do that? Well, if we're going to deal with it on that big uh, macro scale. Let's deal with it first on the micro scale. How, how do I deal with it? How do we deal with it? Because as ultimate as this whole identity and individualism is, 
Um, we're not an island. We're not by ourselves. We are, as the Bible says, the temple of the Holy Spirit, but we are also the corporate temple of the Holy Spirit. Paul spent as much time talking about the corporate temple as he did the individual temple. Uh, that's not as popular to get up and talk about because it sounds too religious to talk about all of us as a church or as a people, but it is part of our journey. And so I do have to deal with how I deal with the scripture for me, but I also have to deal with it with you. I have to be able to come to a melodious, melodious sound with us, not just one as Peter said, no scriptures for private interpretation. So you can't just land on, okay, well, you know, here's the way I see it and, you know, forget what everybody else says and then I'll just move forward and that's how I'll live my life because at some point you're going to need to distill that into someone's life. And how are we going to do that? Well, that's an issue because we struggle to agree, right? I mean, we can't agree on much of anything right now in our society, is what's going on truth? Is what's going on a lie? Who's telling me the truth? Who's telling me a lie? Are they right about that? Or are they wrong about that? Should I get this? Should I not get this? If I do this, what will happen to me? If I don't do this, what will happen to me? Oh, it's exhausting. And you're exhausted. We're all exhausted with that. Uh, we're not going to get out of that because we talk about being exhausted with it. Um, but what, what is this landing on an agreement? Let me, let's think in, in symphonic terms. You sit in front of a symphony, and if you've ever been to the orchestra, you listen to a symphony, and everyone there is a professional. And I don't mean just a professional, but literally some of the best players in the world are sitting in that room at their instrument, whatever their instrument is. They are better than 99.9% .9 of the people on the planet that play that instrument, and in some cases, that have ever played that instrument. But if you walk in during warm-ups, before the music begins, it's absolute professional chaos, right? I mean, everyone playing a different sound. One guy's working on trills. One guy's working on speed. Another guy's working on rhythm. One lady's over here in one key. One lady's over here in another key. And it's chaos all over the room, and it's loud chaos, and it's running all over. And nothing really organizes until tick, tick, tick. And the conductor lifts his hands or her arms, and then boom, every silence. And then out of that moment comes the most miraculous things you've ever heard in your life. But even in that moment, not everyone in that room is playing the same note. That would just be one massive piece of melody. But there's layers. One group's going a little faster than the other group. The other side of the orchestra is playing staccato. The other side of the orchestra is harmonizing on two notes. The other side of the orchestra feels like they're taking the rhythm in a different direction. And now you still have chaos, but no one in the room calls it chaos. You have different directions and different speeds and different sounds, loud, soft, and yet something's happening in your ears. Something is moving you down this river. There's this sound that is not just agreeable, but exciting. It's literally moving you with emotion and how did we go from that chaos to that structure? There's that beauty of those dissonant things that on their own would probably sound in opposition. But then when they come together, they find that melody, that thing that as the symphony goes on, through every movement as it changes speeds, the good writer, the good composer comes back to that same theme. Boom, here it comes in Act 2, the same thing you heard in Act 1, and it comes out of nowhere, all of a sudden, in a different tempo and a different speed, maybe even changing keys, but boom, there it is again. That's how I've started trying to see the Scripture. As pockets, absolute chaos. One thing looks out of tune, this doesn't go with this, I don't know where that's going. 
I don't know how we're going to land. And then, but as, if, if I can find the main river, and I can bring it back to the thing that maybe the scripture's trying to lead me towards. If I can get back to that river, then I might be able to figure out where this slots in or where that slots in. I also might be able to learn this, that this perhaps my job as a believer to go find the main river, the main melody of the, of the symphony of Scripture, and get back in that melody no matter what sound I hear come at me from the different sides of the orchestra. Get in that river and let the other things sort of stay where they are. Now that's kind of a broad spectrum of maybe how we can look at Scripture. That's actually where I want to land today. That's where we want to end up. How do we bring all that dissonance back into one river? To get there, let's deal with it together as individuals because as was said so well earlier, you can have all kinds of theology and all kinds of information. If it's not boots on the ground, if we're not doing something with this, then ultimately we just have a head full of information. Who cares? If it doesn't increase my relations with you, if it doesn't make me love you, make me pick up your burden, then I can talk all day long about what I have. I think it's one of the issues we're running into in the modern church is that we've so emphasized the rights of the individual that we're arguing right and left about what my rights are, what my liberties are, don't tread on me, don't tell me what I can and can't do, that we've forgotten that we don't belong to this system a system that is designed for you to be maximized in your own personal liberty. We belong to the kingdom. And 50% of the definition of the kingdom is loving your neighbor with the same veracity with which you love yourself. And so the kingdom cannot be defined in terms of the Constitution or the Declaration. It cannot be defined in terms of a flag or an eagle or a nation or a geography as only being about me. No, it can't just be me. It's also you. Always. Because that's my king who when he knows what he has, gets up, puts a towel around his waist, and washes his disciples' feet. When does he wash his disciples' feet? The moment he knows what he has and that all things have been given unto him, which is a sign for all of us in the kingdom, is the moment that I know how free I am, then I become responsible to help my brother and to help my neighbor. As I know what I have, then I have the power to lay down what I have so that I can pick up what you have. Or I have the power to lay down what I have so that I can pick up your burden with you as well. There are some great paradoxes even in Scripture that goes, let each man bear his own burden. And then in the same passage, Paul goes, let us bear one another's burden. Those are two verses apart, by the way, in the New Testament. And when you read that, you go, which one is it, Paul? That's the point. It's always both. I bear my burden because I am free in Jesus. But I bear your burden with you because I'm free in Jesus. And that's part of that music, that symphony of dissonant ideas and you and I don't agree and we don't see things the same way and yet we become part of that same temple and how do we get on that same page? How do we land in that same spot? Because an agreement must be reached. Agreement doesn't come easy. I think one of the reasons that agreement doesn't come easy is we don't all speak the same language. It seems to me that's designed that way by God. The early passages of the book of Genesis, we have people who are having no problem building a great tower up into heaven. And so God comes down and scatters their tongue because he says, if I don't scatter their tongue, anything will be possible to them. I read that for a long time and thought, why would God cause such dissonance among the human family that we would speak different languages because God's so afraid that if we're all speaking the same language, we're going to be able to build a big tower? What sense does that make? I struggled with that for a long time. I don't think it had God being afraid of anything. I think it is this, that anything 
that doesn't, any agreement we could come to that doesn't require me to both wrestle and compromise is an unhealthy agreement between the two of us. And so what Babel does is scatter the tongue so that if you're going to build a tower, you're going to have to learn to speak my language, and I'm going to have to learn to speak yours. Otherwise, there's no self-sacrifice by me in order for you and I to do anything. We're already on the same page. And I know we think it would be great to live in a world where we were all on the same page, but that would be Babel. And we don't live there. Where we do live is where we all bring different things to the table and are required by our human compact, the contract we have with each other, to lay some part of ourselves down so that we can pick up some other part for our neighbor. And man, if we're in a season where we need a little dose of that, maybe this is it. So how do we get this thing symphonic again? How do we get this back to where there's a melody that makes sense? In that individual, go to Matthew 18, and I want to deal with just a couple of verses from the ministry of Jesus. These are words written in red where Jesus speaks to us a verse that I think has become one of the more abused passages in the ministry of Jesus. Matthew chapter 18, verse 19, Jesus says, Again, I say to you that if two of you agree on earth concerning anything that they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven, for where two or three are gathered together in my name, I'm there in the midst of them. And if you're like me, you heard these two verses basically espoused this way in church, and that was this. If, if we could just come together in unity and agree in the name of Jesus on something, we could have whatever we ask the Lord to do. He would do it if we could just get in agreement, get our faith on the same level, and that as we get together as a body of Christ, two or three of us together, the Holy Spirit will fall right down here in the midst of us if we can get two or three people in the house. There's only two or three. There's not very many of us here today, but just two or three will gather, then he'll be right there in the midst of us. And I think on the surface, we're just really repeating what we read. We're not really adding any depth to it. We're just sort of changing the language a little bit. Like, hey, if a couple of us could agree, God would move. Or if a couple of us would get in the same room, God would show up. But what's that mean? It's one thing to just quote it and, and then re-say it in our own tongue and then another thing to understand it. Well, to do that, you've got to have context. And here's the issue with this text. This is, like all other texts, doesn't exist in a vacuum. It stands at the end of a longer paragraph. It stands at the end of a story where Jesus says, if a brother sins against you, go tell him his fault, just you and him. Hopefully, you'll be able to work it out. If you can't work it out with just you and him, then take two or three people with you because let things be established in the mouth of two or three witnesses. If that doesn't work, now Jesus is moving on, deeper recourse. He goes, if that doesn't work, if two or three of you go, then what you need to do is bring it and tell the entire church, which is an interesting phrase, because church isn't something that they had really in their vernacular as far as this kind of church. Church is really the called ones, the gathered ones. And so bring them to the people in your life that really matter, and then... If he refuses to listen to that, you tried. You went one-on-one. -on -one, you went with two or three people. You went with a group of your friends. If he refuses, then, then just forget him because you can't. there's no way you're going to be able to make up if you've brought everybody into the situation. And then he says, if you, if you bind that relationship, then it's bound in the kingdom. If you release that relationship, it's loosed in the kingdom. And I even say to you, whatever you bind on earth is bound in heaven. What you loose on earth is loosed in heaven. And I tell you that if you could agree on any one thing, then there would be nothing left you couldn't accomplish. 
Contextually, you can't agree on any one thing and therefore disassociation because you are not able to come to an agreement. If you could come to an agreement, here's the beauty. If you could get on the same page about something that mattered, there'd be nothing you couldn't accomplish. And man, is that not true. If we could come to an agreement on something, there'd be nothing in that particular area that we would not be able to accomplish. He says, if two or three gather in my name then you know that that's where I am. Why? Because there's something that happens in the middle of that agreement. Let's look at that word. The Greek word agree. Go back to verse 19. Again, I say to you, if any two of you agree on earth, is the Greek word symphonio, where we get the English word symphony. What is Jesus saying? If any two of you can make a symphony. Now, I know I'm interpolating a little bit because the word symphony is not in their vernacular. Certainly not 17th, 18th, 19th century version of music called a symphony. But the word is why we derive the phrase symphonies because a lot of things that don't necessarily go together lay down their own individualness to come together. So you don't get to be the showboat violinist or the showboat cello player or the showboat trumpet player. you got to bring it down a notch so that you fit within the greater context of symphony. There's no solo artist. If there are, it's concerto for such and so and orchestra. We'll highlight one instrument over the other, but a symphony is everybody melding into that same flow, that same melody. And so Jesus says if you can get symphonio, if you can bring that sound into where it's equal on the same thing, he says there's nothing you wouldn't be able to accomplish. If two or three could get in on the symphony, then we could build whatever we need to build. And I I will say it this far. I, I think if we could get in concert, if we could get on symphony, we could cure anything we need to cure. We could solve anything we need to solve. We could do anything we need to do. It is in our power as citizens of the kingdom to do great things upon the earth. But what is it going to require? It is going to require us to figure out what the melody is we should be rallied around. And sometimes I think we're getting a little distracted because we're trying to rally around political ideas or we're trying to rally around ideologies or we're trying to rally around moralities. We're trying to rally around national thoughts or public thought rather than the symphony that I think is the undercurrent, the undertow of the river of Scripture. And Jesus doesn't just have us gathering together around happiness. If you could gather around around happiness, you could accomplish stuff. If you could gather together around me, Meaning you could accomplish stuff. He says, no, if you could gather together around me, he says, you could accomplish stuff because he is the centerpiece of it. Not just a thought process, not just an idea, but him as the centerpiece of that symphony. And I, I think we could do what needs to be done on the earth if we could get back into that symphonic sound, back into that place. And scripture carries a tune and scripture walks in agreement Finding the tune can be the challenge because sometimes we get lost on the, in that journey, right? And finding the tune is the challenge. Now, Jesus has already given us a moment here in the text where if we could come into this agreement, this idea rallied around him, man, what could we accomplish? And we've all seen that happen where people come together with the focus of shining the light on Jesus and then great things happen. In fact, I'm going to say, you're probably here as a result of somebody 
agreeing with somebody else and you ended up being in the middle of that river, a message, a ministry, a song, a a statement, whatever it took that brought you into that place and then you were able to sort of flow in the middle of that because you were, because someone was in agreement. So in some ways we see how the symphony works with with just us because we're here and we're believers. But not everything is designed to flow together. We have to find what's designed to flow together. Let me give you an example. Luke chapter 5. Go here real quick. Just to show you a text that's, that's pretty popular in circles of teaching of the new covenant. Because it's one of those passages that we use to sort of define what the covenant is and what the covenant isn't. Luke chapter 5 verse 36. Jesus spoke a parable to his disciples. And he said, no one puts a piece from a new garment on an old one. Otherwise, the new makes a tear And also the piece that was taken out of the new does not match the old. Popular verse that basically says you don't take a patch, a new patch, and put it on an old, say, an old pair of pants because the old is not going to be able to hold the strength of the new. And what will eventually happen? It'll just fall apart. It's really only going to last so long, in other words. By putting a new patch, you don't make the pants new. You just prolong the life temporarily, and eventually it all rips out anyway. And it was really just a Band-Aid over an open wound. And so Jesus says, those things don't match. They don't go together. And no one puts new wine in old wineskins, else the new wine bursts the wineskins, and it's spilled, and the wineskins are ruined. But new wine must be put into new wineskins, and both are preserved. And we've taken this verse and these verses, and I think rightfully so, to mean that you can't take the new, the freshness, the power of the new covenant, and you can't mix and mingle it with that old staleness of an old covenant because it won't work together. But here's what we might miss. Go back to the end of verse 36. The piece that was taken out of the new does not match the old. And the word match there is the Greek word symphonio. It's the same word Jesus used when he said, if you could agree on any one thing, man, what could you accomplish? He uses the word symphony. He says, when you take the new and you stick it into the old, they don't sing the same song. They're not a symphony. They're two different songs playing on two different frequencies in two different keys. And while that song might have worked in that room and this song works in this room, these two songs cannot play together in the same symphony. And he says, you can't mix that which is new with that which is old. because Why? Because they're not the same symphonic sound. And this is why you have to read some of what you read back here differently than you read some of what you read up here. And be careful trying to make two different songs in two different keys sing the same thing because they don't. Now we might say, yes, but it's all the Bible. But it's not all the same symphony. And if I can discover the core of that symphony, then I'll be able to make a move towards understanding what God's trying to say to me. So what happens when it looks like the Bible itself is out of tune? Just what do we do? Just think about this with me for a moment. I mean, the Old Testament spends a lot of time, a lot of time, particularly in the Torah, with trying to tell you what you can eat and what you can't eat. And the list of stuff you can't eat is almost everything we ate last night. (laughs) All right? So we go, okay, and then we we can say, okay, well, that's not in the new covenants. We don't have to deal with that. Okay, okay, that's, that's an answer. The Old Testament spends a lot of time telling you how you're supposed to treat your slaves. 
We go, oh, well, that, you know, that's, that's, not a, that's not relevant for us. But the New Testament also tells you, if you're a slave, don't strive to be free. Serve your master with humility. And you go, hmm, that's a, that's, a, that's a toughie. Now, we're going to deal with that one in detail tomorrow as we get into the song of the New Testament, what the New Testament is trying to sing, even when the note fluctuates once in a while. But just think about because that's there. A lot of time on how you're supposed to treat your slave. The Old Testament spends a lot of time on which enemies you're supposed to kill. Which members of the family are to die first when you kill them. How many of you know you've read your Old Testament and that's in there? And, and I know. We, we go, we're not under that. We're under a new covenant. We don't have to deal with that. But yet that sound is blasting forth from passages of our Old Testament. Or let's just say you confine it to books in the Old Testament. We got a book of erotic poetry in the Old Testament. So erotic, by the way, that you were not allowed to read it if you were Jewish until you were 30 years old. There's the Song of Solomon. Try teaching that one in children's church sometime. You're going to have to make Jesus the husband and the church the bride, and you're going to have to leave the sex out. And when you do that, there goes 99% of the book. That's in there. Is that the symphony that we read when we pick up our Bible? Not always, but that's there. How about a book about a woman who was raised in a king's harem and trained to pleasure the king properly so that he would pick her over all of her peers and behind the scenes are betrayal and murder and God's name never shows up once in the book. How about that one? That's in the Bible. That's the book of Esther. Is that part of the symphonic sound of scripture? It's not what you open with when you try to introduce people to Jesus. I can guarantee you. How about a book that plays out first in the heavenlies, behind the scenes, and then plays out on the earth with actual characters like chess pieces on a board, and when the book ends, the main characters in the play are never informed about what happened behind the scenes, and we're not left with an answer as to why it happens. We're just left with the hope that when it happens, we'll end up with double that we had before. That... It's the book of Job. Gives us a lot of hope when we go through trouble, but it doesn't give us a lot of answers as to why, except we just go, well, it's all the devil. And that's kind of where people land at the end of Job and go, well, it's all the devil. And which opens up another can of worms because we go, God's the one told him he could do it. And he doesn't even tell Job that at the end of the book and say, hey, here's why I did what I did. But we're still forced to wrestle with and contend with that book. It happens that what, what about a book where a guy says there's really nothing new under the sun, everything you do is total vanity, total waste, and by the way, when you die, you're just like the animals, you are dead. You don't know anything, it's all over with. That is the book of Ecclesiastes. Now try preaching heaven and hell out of that book. Open that one up at a funeral sometime and see how much life you pour into people. I'm not mocking the word at all. I told you before, I love the contention and the wrestling that comes with the Bible, but I also want to be honest that some of these things are a little bit out of tune with the main sound of the Bible. They're a little bit out of tune with where we land. They're a little bit out of tune with the melody, that melody that progresses us, that moves us forward in the Scripture because there's really a river. Like that old movie, A River Runs Through It. There's really a river that runs through the Bible. There's this sound... I think it's awesome that the book of Genesis starts with this, with this moment in a garden where this sort of trifold river comes rushing out, feeding the garden of God and then feeding the earth. 
And then when you get to the book of Revelation, there's a river that runs through the city of God. And the tree of life that was in the garden has become the trees of life in the, on the sides of the river in the book of Revelation. It's as if the Bible is showing you that out of the paradise of God flows a river. And that river runs through the text of Scripture and ends up in the paradise of God in our new creation. Now what happens we're very honest, is if we follow that trailhead of that river in the scripture, what will happen is we will take some turns, some tributaries off of that mainstream. And as we tributary off that mainstream, we might end up in a creek that goes nowhere. Because if you spend all of your time in the Bible just simply chasing the measurements of the tabernacle in the wilderness, how many inches, how many cubits, how many feet, what were the colors, how much gold, how big was the table, how often do it... And, and man, you can take it and try to put Jesus in there and go, Jesus looks like this and Jesus looks like that. Wonderful, but how many of you know that eventually you just end up out here in the middle of a wilderness with a temple that's ugly on the outside and pretty on the inside, and the best we can go is, well, maybe that's me. I'm ugly on the outside and I'm pretty on the inside, and maybe that's Jesus. He's ugly on the outside, and he's pretty. And, and we end up, but we're not back in the river of who God is and what God is and what God wants to do. And, what, and, and so we end up wading out here into these issues, and we can't ignore them because they're real and people are going to to bring them up to us but we have to find that symphony we have to find that agreement because if we try to mash those things together and go they have to always subsist what we end up with is a new patch on an old pair of pants and jesus said the symphony can't happen when we try to cram things that don't belong together together so i believe that even in the new testament we get revealed that there was always a sound there was always a symphony there was always this thing that was moving, that was pulsing through the scripture, and it's just ours to discover. Go to Acts chapter 15, and, and I just want to slow down here for a second and introduce what's happening in Acts chapter 15. This is the first council that's ever called in the early church. This is where the early church leaders decide to have their first conference, basically, and in their conference, it's not about espousing, espousing theological points. It's not about people coming and growing. It's really about establishing the framework of one major argument that has surfaced in the body of the early church. And the argument starts with, first of all, can non-Jews even be saved? Well, by the time we get to the council in Jerusalem, they're pretty sure they've solved this problem. Peter's already had his Acts chapter 10 incident at Cornelius' house, where an obvious group of non-Jews received the Holy Spirit and spoke with other tongues. The Apostle Paul has already had his conversion experience on the road to Damascus and has begun to preach to Gentiles. And he's watched this major transformation happen to the people in Galatia. And so he has seen God move in the midst of the Gentiles. So the argument is not really can Gentiles receive. The argument is, is once they receive, are they really part of the family? Now, the reason why that is the significant question is because to the Jewish mind of the first century... What was the physical marker that made you Jewish? It wasn't. Now, all of these other things are peripheral to it. It might be your hair, and it might be your head covering or lack thereof, and it might be whether you go to synagogue, and it might be whether or not you sacrifice, and it might have to do with Torah. But the real one, the biggie, the one that preceded Moses, the one that went farther back than the Torah was one physical marker, circumcision. If you were one of the sons of Abraham, you were supposed to be physically circumcised. To not be physically circumcised, and there was a reason it was in your sexual member. 
And it's why we talk about, it's why there are so many sexual instructions in the Old Testament. Because it was believed that if you were circumcised, you had had that portion of you purified, and thus there was a purity that flowed out of that. Anything outside of that was completely impure. And so to be Gentile and receive Christ was a great thing. Obviously, you could. They're not arguing that anymore. Genesis, or, uh, Genesis Acts 10 shows you, yeah, Cornelius' house can be saved. Gentiles can be saved. But are they really saved? Are they really a part of us? Because we've got a whole book back here that's written to a group of people with a bunch of instructions for that group of people and a bunch of things that group of people is supposed to eat and not supposed to eat and how they're supposed to dress and how they're not supposed to dress and where they're supposed to go and who gets in and who gets out and who gets to come in the temple and who gets to never come in the temple. And all of those things are Scripture. So what do we do with that? How do we handle all of that, if Gentiles are allowed in, the best answer is Gentiles are supposed to get circumcised. Because if they were to get circumcised, then that would connect them all the way back to Abraham. And then they would be under the obligations of whatever circumcised people are under. And since this book was written to circumcised people, what do we tell uncircumcised people? How do we deal with them if they don't get circumcised? And for us, this argument is almost silly. In the modern church, I've never really been able to effectively preach Acts 15 in the modern church because we just don't get it. We honestly think they're just kind of dumb for fighting about this. Like, why are they sitting here getting all mad about it? But it's because we're so disconnected to the stability of what their religion was, which was the external form of circumcision because the seed of the man would pass through his circumcision and thus connect his next generation way back to the first circumcision. And so it wasn't just about being saved, a term they wouldn't have even understood. It was about being connected to God through Abraham. It was about properly being the people of God. And so the early church is arguing that it's not the Holy Spirit that makes you the people of God. It's the act of circumcision that connects you to your fathers. This is why John chapter 1 is such an amazing moment when John says... For those of us who believe on his name, he hath given us the authority to call ourselves the sons of God, not by the work of the flesh, nor by the will of man, nor by sex. Not by blood, not by sex, not by effort. Why? What's that mean? It means you connect to him as sons, not by tracing your lineage backwards through circumcised events to your first father, but through the one cutting of the one man, Christ Jesus. And so the fight is brought to the front in Acts chapter 15. They're ready to, for the anger to begin. Peter stands up. Peter really has the ear of the early church. How could he not? Jesus looks at Peter and says, on this rock, I'll build my church. Peter looks at the church and says, what I know is this. I watched him give the Holy Spirit to a group of Gentiles. He's talking about the house of Cornelius. And he says, they received the Holy Spirit the same way we did. And I perceive that we shall be saved in the same manner they are, which is an amazing flip it's not that Gentiles will be saved like we are. It's we will be saved like they are. I want to stop right there and just point out how path-breaking that statement is. Because up until this moment, Gentile, the argument is Gentiles have to get saved like we do. How do we do it? Circumcision. Peter goes, no, I watched him give the Holy Spirit to non-circumcised people. Therefore, I believe we've got this thing backwards. They're not getting it like we get it. We're supposed to get it like they get it. So we need to watch how they receive and then we can receive as well. Right there, folks, the sound of the Bible is changing. Let's slow down for a moment. Just make sure we hear that. There's been a note being played. 
And when Peter says, we perceive that we got the note wrong, it wasn't they get saved like us. It was we get saved like them. And therefore, we've changed the tune just a little bit. And if that's the case, then we need to go back into the scriptures and find where we miss the melody. Maybe the melody was not what food you eat and don't eat. Maybe the melody was not how you treat your slaves. Maybe the melody was not individual books. Maybe the melody was something we missed. Maybe while we've been tuning our instruments to one sound, we were supposed to be looking for another sound. So they turn to Paul and they say, what about you, Paul? What do you think? And Paul says, well, Barnabas and I have been in all of these countries and we've watched what God did at our hand through the Gentiles. And so we believe what Peter said, that there's a different sound. And so James, really the head of the early church, stands and makes this statement. Look at Acts chapter 15, verse 13. They became silent and James answered saying, Men and brethren, listen to me. Simon has declared how God at the first visited the Gentiles to take out of them a people for his name. And with this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after this I will return and rebuild the tabernacle of David which has fallen down. I will rebuild its ruins. I will begin to set it up so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who does all these things. Go back to verse 15. With this, the words of the prophets agree is the Greek word symphonio. James says, with Peter's statement, the Old Testament is in symphony. We just didn't hear it till this moment. He goes, the Old Testament always agreed that what God really wanted to do was move outside the boundaries of a single people and pull the whole wide world in. You know how this gets reimagined by the Apostle Paul? Remember this statement from the Old Testament where God says to Abram, through you shall the nations of the earth be blessed. And then you get to the New Testament and not one New Testament writer repeats that. We don't receive New Testament writers giving land promises and telling Gentiles you're going to get blessed because of Jews. Instead, Paul in the book of Romans says, and we, through the Holy Spirit, are the inheritors of the whole wide world, Paul says to the Roman, to the Roman Christians. What's he mean? No longer is God talking in national terms. Now God is talking in whole people terms. Now God is talking in corporate terms. Now God, no longer just a group, a circumcised group, a people on the earth in one piece of geography, but rather the whole world comes in in terms of who Christ is. This is why it's behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, not just the sin of his people, not just the sin of his nation, but the sin of the world to press that boundary out to bring into symphony what the Old Testament, the sound it was always trying to make. And what is that sound? Look, look, at, that, look at that again. With this, the words of the prophets are all in symphony. With what? The fact that Gentiles get to come in. And yet, folks, to find that in the Old Testament, you got to dig. you got to dig. Because the Old Testament is not screaming, everybody gets to come in. But once you see Jesus, you start to realize that the symphony of heaven was a sound that was down inside of that orchestra, that if you listen for it, once you hear it, it's like where's Waldo? Once you find him, you can't not find him. Once you hear the melody, you can't not hear the melody. The symphony, the sound. James says the whole Old Testament is in symphony. It agrees that what God wants to do is save Gentiles. And yet you go back and look at the stuff I showed you and you go, where is that? 
And yet down in there, Elijah goes to the widow of Zarephath's house and multiplies meal and blesses her family. And the widow at Zarephath, because she's from Zarephath, is a Gentile, not a Jew. What's Elijah doing in her house? She doesn't get in. Why does Elisha receive Naaman the Syrian, a general whose armies are destroying the people of God, and yet Elisha tells him to go down into the river and dip seven times, and if he does, he'll be cured of his plague, and he does it, and he is. And he's not a Jew. He's a Gentile, and he receives a healing as if he were one of the sons of God. Why does God send Jonah to Nineveh? A people outside of the covenant of promise, a people who are not circumcised, a people who slaughter their own children in the name of a foreign God. And yet God sends Jonah to them and says, you have 40 days to repent. And if you repent, I will relent. And they repent and God relents. And Jonah knows God will, which is odd because we haven't seen God do this to foreign nations. And yet Jonah knows if I go preach, they'll, they'll repent. And if they repent, God will forgive them. Where did he come up with that? Because he heard the symphony. He heard the sound. My God doesn't have a favorite people. My God loves who he loves. My God accepts who he accepts. It's outside the realm. Just to, just to prove to you, if proving is necessary, just to prove to you that Jesus agrees with pulling the tune into a different key, and if you've been used to hearing it differently, it's going to sound weird at first. Jesus made this statement way back in our Matthew 18 text. He says, no man tastes the new and prefers it because he wants the old first. Okay, remember that was the new covenant, old covenant, and that, that, that's a strange one. He goes, you don't taste the new, you wish you had the old, the old's what's familiar. And I think it's Jesus saying, people are going to try to mesh these two things together because one thing sounds familiar and the other thing sounds unfamiliar. Here this is playing out in real time. Jesus goes into the tabernacle, goes into the synagogue on a Saturday and reads from Isaiah chapter 61, the spirit of the Lord is upon me for he hath anointed me to preach the gospel to the poor, to heal the brokenhearted. All these beautiful statements of anointing. And when he gets to the end, he says, this day is this scripture fulfilled in your ears. And he rolls the scroll up and he hands it back and he goes and he sits down among his brethren. And the group all begin to elbow each other and go, isn't this Joseph's kid? Who's this guy? We know this guy. What's he doing coming in here and saying this? And Jesus stands back up and he says, why are you murmuring amongst yourselves? He says, I know what you're going to say. Physician, heal thyself. He said, but let me tell you who's really sick in this room. He goes, why is it that Elijah would go to the widow of Zarephath when there were plenty Plenty of widows in the land of Israel. And why is it that Elisha would heal Naaman of leprosy when there were plenty of lepers in the nation of Israel? And he says, that's what's been unleashed on you today. And the Bible says, and the people in that room picked up stones to stone him because of what he had said. They went from amazement to anger in one sermon. Why? Because what Jesus did was reveal the real sound of the heart of God's symphony. And the real sound was God doesn't have a favorite people. God loves people. The real sound made their ear ring. They went, wait, that doesn't sound right. Why? You know what? Never thought about it. Why did he go heal? Why? Just a minute. Why did he go to the widow at Zarephath? Why didn't he go to the other widows? They're Jewish. Wait a minute. Why did he heal Naaman of leprosy? He didn't heal anybody else of leprosy. Why would he heal a Syrian of leprosy and not one of our own people of leprosy? And the fact that Jesus was bringing this sound to their ears, a sound they had never thought of before, but was always back here, 
that was enough to force Jesus out of their presence. And I think it's still forcing people to push Jesus out of our presence now when we try to shift the music in the church away from what you do, what you don't do, what you wear, what you don't wear, what you watch, what you don't watch, who you hang out with, who you don't hang out with, who you vote for, who you don't vote for, how you feel about that policy, how you don't feel about that policy, what's your ideology, what's not your ideology. When we start shifting people's ears towards love your neighbor, Who's your neighbor? Last person you wish it would be. Guarantee you that. Our ears ring, and we get angry, and we wonder what we're hearing and why it's false prophets, and we wonder if we're not living in the last days. Surely we are, because that right there is a strange doctrine. There's no way that it can't be X, Y, Z, black, white, left, right. There's no way it can be somewhere else. There's no way that I've been wrong about how I viewed my faith. It must be something else. And I say to you that I think what has happened is we need our ear retuned to what was the symphony of the Bible. And when James heard it, when James in Acts 15 hears Peter's testimony and he hears Paul's testimony and he hears Barnabas's testimony, he's reminded of his brother, the Lord Jesus. And he goes, you know what? Now that looks like my Jesus. That looks like my brother. And you know what? I didn't accept him when he was around. Because according to the book of Mark, Jesus' own family thought he was crazy. They didn't want anything to do with him. They one time tried to pull him out of a healing session because he had lost his mind. At least that was their perception. Why? Because the symphony Jesus was playing didn't sound like the symphony they were raised on. You don't go hang out at the well and talk to a woman who's on, the, who's on a man she's not married to and has been divorced five times in the middle of Samaria. You don't do that. You don't let a woman with an issue of blood reach through the crowd and touch you. And if you do know she did it, you purify yourself because now you're unclean. You don't turn around and call her daughter. And yet... Jesus, it's like he's playing a different song. Why? Because he's playing a song that was layered over in our scriptures with all other kinds of tributaries and streams and ideas. It's not new music, per se. It's just the music that's harder to find when you get distracted. I liken what I'm talking about to the attitude of the Pharisees. Now, none of us ever want to be a Pharisee. But how many of you realize we're closer there often than we are to Jesus? I know Christ lives in us. I know he's the hope of glory. I know we are what he says we are. But in our experience, sometimes we're a little more Pharisee than we are Jesus. If nothing else in this area right here, what happened to Pharisees is they got so concerned with living right, looking right, and doing right, they forgot that people are not interruptions to doing the right thing. Jesus come along and exposed the fact that they thought loving people was an interruption to being holy. Loving people is holy. All of the other stuff are tributaries to holiness. They're not worth staying on in your boat very long, Get back to the mainstream of loving people. So when James hears Peter's testimony and Paul's testimony and Barnabas' testimony and remembers the Jesus he grew up with, he says, I perceive that the prophets have been in symphony the whole time. Where did he get that? Because he understood that if you read deeper through the text, you'll find that what God was always doing was preparing a world that could receive him in the flesh no matter who they were. And the text that James uses is the book of Amos. And he says, as it has been written, I shall restore the tabernacle of David. And the odd thing is, is you've got to read between the lines to even come up with the tabernacle of David. Because if you've ever done a tabernacle study, it ain't one. 
You ever done a temple study, like all the temples that are built in the Bible? There's no temple of David. He wanted to build a temple, but he didn't get to. Remember, his kid builds the temple. What's his tabernacle? The closest you can get is the Old Testament to where David tries to bring the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem, and Achan reaches up and puts his hand on it and falls over and dies. So David stores the tabernacle for 90 days in the house of Obadiah, a Gentile. And in those 90 days, Obadiah's house has prospered greatly. And David scratches his head in the middle of his temple one day, or in the middle of on his throne one day, and goes, Hmm, I wonder how it is that Obadiah, who doesn't even know God, is getting blessed. It must be the Ark of the Covenant. I'm gonna bring the Ark of the Covenant back. So he goes and steals Obadiah's blessing. If I'm Obadiah, I'm like, get out of my house. I don't know what this piece of furniture is, but I never made so much money, never been so healthy, never done so well. I'm going to leave it right here. But anyway, David takes the Ark of the Covenant, he brings it back, but he doesn't build a big temple for it. He pitches a tent, unzips the flap, and lets all of Israel walk in front of the only thing even resembling a tabernacle of David. I personally believe the reason the Bible calls David a man after God's own heart is because David's the only guy in the Old Testament that figured out you're not supposed to have a wall of separation between people in the presence of God. And once he unzipped that tent flap and let everybody walk in front of it, the Bible says he gave everybody a loaf of bread and a flagon of wine. He threw a party. He shared the covenant meal with everyone who walked up and got to see the tabernacle. And when James hears about Gentiles getting saved, speaking in tongues, and, and uh, receiving the gifts of the Spirit and flowing with God, James goes, you know what? I perceive the whole thing was always a different song than we've been singing. Guys, we need to change tunes. I think all along what daddy wanted to do was save anybody who was alive. I think his goal was whatever color you are, whatever stripe you are, whatever voice you have, wherever you live, however you were born, whatever your background is, whatever you've done, I got a feeling we're not supposed to be putting, and this is the conclusion he comes to, I got a feeling we're not supposed to put on them a burden that not even us nor our fathers could bear. He goes, I got a feeling we're not supposed to try to shove them back into the tributary of Scripture. I've got a feeling we're all supposed to get into the main river. I've got a feeling we're not supposed to get them to sing our song. I've got a feeling we're all supposed to retune to the master. I've got a feeling that the symphony is supposed to change tunes. I've got a feeling that we're supposed to follow that sound that looks like Jesus. And that's why I say I find myself contentious more than once with the Bible. But how I land is to go. Listen for the main melody, Paul. The main melody is not what you eat and don't eat, how you treat it. Some of this stuff's bound by context, bound by culture, and bound by people you can't possibly understand. You can sit here and wrestle all day stuff you'll never get your mind around. But what you can do is tune your ear for the music. Watch for a God who won't leave you when you walk out of the Garden of Eden, but will follow you when you walk out of the Garden of Eden. Watch a God that will wrestle with you in the wilderness and change your name because he cares too much to let you be who you are. Watch a God that will stretch outside the boundaries of his own people and go pull in what he can pull in. Watch a God that when Jesus comes, this is my opinion, I believe when Jesus comes, it's God saying to us, let me explain myself. Here's Jesus. Because I'm wrestling with a lot of this stuff. And I go, I don't know what to do with this, and I don't know what to do with this, and I don't know what to do with that, and I'm not going to preach that. And boy, I'm glad they didn't write a children's book on that story, and uh, I'm not going to tell my kids about that, and I'm not going to. And then here comes Jesus, and I really think it's God stepping, if you can get illustrative for a moment, it's God stepping to the balcony of heaven and shouting down at us, let me explain myself. My kids haven't always done a great job of explaining me. Let me explain myself. Watch how I deal with people that hate me. Watch how I deal with my neighbor. 
Watch how I deal with the poor, with the hurting, with the marginalized. Watch the kingdom I start to build. Watch how I unleash it on you. Listen for my stories. Watch my illustrations. It's why the gospel is only halfway home when you say to people, Jesus came to die. You're only 50% right. Jesus came to show you how to live. Start with his death and get infatuated with his life because in his life, he'll show you the tune of heaven. There's the symphony of the scripture. Don't cram together what doesn't belong. Listen carefully for the sound. What's the Bible trying to say to me? Don't get lost in the tributary. Don't just chase rabbits. Listen for the main melody. Let your life get in tune with the main melody. When we do that, we'll truly come into agreement with the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's agreement, I believe, is all about people. It's that the Father loves his creation. He loves them immensely. He loves them madly. He loves them more than we've been able to express, and he loves them more than they're even able to receive. I don't want to get home and hear the Father say to me, son, why'd you make me so small? And I'm positive that it's no possibility I can get home and him say, son, why'd you make me so big? I don't think that can happen. Son, why'd you make me so loving? Paul, you were up there telling people how much I love them. There's no way I could love people as much as you were telling them I love them. Son, there's no way my love is that high, that deep, that wide, that long. I think you and I both know. It's impossible that that's the conversation we meet when we get to heaven. And he goes, gosh, why did you make me so big? But I do think it's possible that there's going to be a few moments where he says, you could have made me bigger. You limit. Don't limit me. Let me love them. Let me embrace them. Tune your ministry, Paul, to the sound of my symphony. And if you can... Anything's possible. For if any two of you are in symphony on anything on earth, you move heaven. So how are you going to do that? You better find heaven's symphony. And when you tune to the symphony of heaven, there's no limits of what the kingdom can accomplish. See, it's why I'm optimistic in the middle of a pretty pessimistic, chaotic world. I'm pretty optimistic. And I'm optimistic because we survive you see, the church, I mean the church of Jesus Christ survives. Why? Because in the book of Revelation, in all seven churches, he's standing in the middle of them. Even the ones that are not doing well. Even us, when we drop the ball, where's Jesus? In the middle of his church. Complimenting her first, reprimanding her second. Because there are things to compliment. But believe you me, there are things to reprimand. We don't like to say this in grace circles but the book of Revelation is pretty clear that at least four of the seven churches, he goes, I got somewhat against you. <laughs> That's like 65% of the time he goes, I got some problems with some of the stuff you're doing. But it's okay. I'm in the middle of you. You and I can get in the same tune. We can flow in the same river. And if we do, there's nothing that could not be accomplished. Our text from Matthew is not about if the two of us could agree on one thing, God has to do what it is we say. It's if the two of us could get our music in tune with the melody of heaven. There's no telling what heaven could do in our hell. And so while I look around and see some hell, I believe the music of heaven is still playing. I just might have to shut all the other music off. Listen for the sound. Try to get my life in tune with it. And I know that's going to hurt, man, because I know when I get my life in tune, I'm going to have a couple places I'm pretty confident I'm right, and the Holy Spirit's going to go, it isn't about being right. It's about you laying down yourself to pick up someone else's burden. So it isn't about you winning. It's about me winning, he says. 
It's about me loving and showing what love looks like through us. We're his arms. We're his hands. We're his feet. We're the hope for the earth. If you're pessimistic, you've forgotten the church. If you've forgotten the church, you've forgotten the Jesus that stands in it. You can't be pessimistic and belong to the kingdom. It's not possible. Because the kingdom is like a woman that puts yeast into the bread and the yeast, the bread keeps rising. We're still rising. It's just time for the church to change the melody, change the tune, and get back to where James goes. I perceive the prophets were always saying this. And you could have raised your hand that day and went, oh, no, they weren't. Look at this verse and this verse and this verse and this verse. James, you're wrong. The prophets were not all saying that. And we'd be missing the point of the music. Because the point of finding the melody is not to dwell on everybody that's out of tune in the orchestra. It's to find that melody and line up our lives in harmony with it. And that's what James is saying. And that's what I want to do. And I know it's what you want to do. How do I do it? Listen for him. Watch for him. Wait for him. See him. Father, thank you today for this great privilege of sharing good news with your people. Father, what I've tried to do is find the music. I don't, there are so many moments where I don't find the music where I'm a little out of tune with what I think you're wanting to say and what you're wanting to do. And to do that, to find it, I have to go back and I have to start peeling away the layers of the stuff I've become infatuated with. I have to get back to the core of the sound of who you are. And I'll admit, sometimes I don't like the fact that you go to the widow at Zarephath when there were a lot of other widows you could have went to, or that you heal Naaman when you could have healed another leper. I'm just, I'm that person in that room sometimes saying, why is it this way? and Why is it not that way? And I have this figured out, but I don't see it that way. Father, teach me. Tune my life to the symphony of Scripture and all of us, those here and those watching and listening somewhere down the road. What is the sound? If we can ever get the sound, we'll be like your first council in Jerusalem. We'll say, let's lay no greater burden. What we couldn't bear or our fathers. Father, help us to pull the grave clothes off and find the right sound. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen.